0: Welcome to Pushing Up Lilies. I'm your host, Julie Mattson. Pushing Up Lilies is a weekly true crime podcast with spine-tingling, unusual, and terrifyingly true stories from my perspective as a forensic death investigator and a sexual assault nurse examiner. Do I have some stories for you? Are you ready? A lot of people have asked me exactly what a death investigator does. And a lot of people will call me the medical examiner, which I am not. I actually am not a doctor. I am a nurse, though. And there are very few nurses in this field that do the job that I do. A lot of the people that I work with are actually retired law enforcement, and many of them have degrees in criminal justice as well as mortuary science. So there are a lot of different backgrounds of people doing the same job that I do. Medical examiners are actually forensic pathologists who have to be doctors, and they are the ones who perform the actual autopsy. The forensic death investigators that are on scene are actually there to help the doctors. So we do many things when we go out on scenes to assist the doctors in Coming to the conclusion as far as what the cause and manner of death are, a lot of people call me forensics, which is I am a forensic nurse, but I am not forensics, which to me is not even a noun. So there are many things that we are called, but we are forensic death investigators, also called medical legal death investigators in many places because we kind of bring the aspect of medical and legal together to help the doctors determine the cause and manner of death. But we do investigate deaths that fall under the jurisdiction of the medical examiner, and that is suspicious deaths, violent deaths, and deaths that are unexplained and unexpected. So many, but not all, death investigators are certified by a board called the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators. And what they do is they certify those investigators who have proven knowledge and have the skills to perform death investigations. There are different levels of certifications. You don't have to have this in most offices to work in the field, although everyone in our office does. One thing that we don't do is autopsies. Now, you may find in some offices that the investigators have multiple jobs, and one of them may be to serve as an autopsy tech and also investigate the deaths. Those may be in smaller offices where they have fewer staff members and they utilize the investigators also as autopsy techs. In our office, though, we do not. Ultimately, the autopsies are done by the forensic pathologists or the medical examiners or assistant medical examiners that work at the office. We also do not collect DNA at the scenes at our office. Not to say that it's not done everywhere, but I know on TV they're like, Who is this guy? Let's go ahead and collect some evidence on him and see if we can find out who he is. And all of a sudden on an iPad, DNA comes back in 15 minutes. And Definitely does not happen that way. We do not swab the body in any way before we send it to the medical examiner because we don't want to lose evidence, right? So that's not something that we do on scene, which many people see on TV and maybe get angry when they find out that DNA does take a little bit longer than it does on CSI. But part of our jobs as death investigators is to get information. We will receive a call from be it a hospital setting, maybe a nurse or a doctor. We'll get a call from a doctor or a nurse in a hospice setting, sometimes when a death occurs there. Not always in the emergency room. Sometimes they're on the medical floor at the hospital or they're in ICU at the hospital. Many times we'll get calls from officers at a scene who have responded for a welfare check and found someone deceased. So there's a lot of information that we get from the caller, and that determines whether or not we really need to get involved as far as going to the scene. Or if we can just take a simple report, if it's an elderly person or even a young person with medical problems, then they probably have a doctor and we're not going to need to go. So when we respond to a scene, though, when the decision is made, which is going to be, again, any death that is undetermined, suspicious, unexpected, violent. Those are the ones that we'll respond to. So when we get there, we are going to take photos. We're going to take pictures of the overall scene. We're going to take pictures of the person, making sure to get a close-up of the face for identification purposes, if that's Ever an issue. And then we're also going to get pictures of any injuries that we see. If it's a vehicle, we're going to get really good detailed photos of the vehicle. We're going to get pictures of the decedent in the vehicle. How are they sitting? Have the airbags deployed? Do they have their seatbelt on? Different things like that. So we want to get as detailed as we can photos, and you can never take too many. Because we want our doctors to feel like they were there. We want them to be able to look at the body and also look at our scene photos and put the picture together to determine the cause and manner of death. And in addition, we are going to interview people to get additional information. But we don't move anything before we take pictures. We want photos of the scene the way it was when the person was found. We want to always make notes about things that are moved prior to us getting there. Many times, you know, the police or the fire department will have to move something in efforts to try and resuscitate someone if they think that that's a possibility. And we always make notes of those things that are moved. Many times when we get to the scene, it's not supposed to happen, but it has, where law enforcement may have moved the weapon or picked up the casings, and we need to know where the weapons were, what the weapons were, what the ammunition was, where the casings were found, if the projectiles were located. All those things are very important to our doctor and a big part of what we do. So it's very important for us to know what may have been moved before we got there. Also, anything suspicious. We just... Make note of anything that we find in the residence that seems out of place or seems like it shouldn't be there. Those are things that we want to definitely make note of. We're also going to visit with the friends and family, right? Because we're going to ask them, you know, has this person been sick? Has this person been depressed? Depending on what the cause of death appears to be, we're going to ask questions about history. If it's a young person found deceased at home, we're going to ask, is there a family history? Did dad die at a young age of a heart attack? Did dad have coronary artery disease? Anybody in the family have any medical problems that could have been passed down genetically to cause this young person to die at a young age? And those things are very important because sometimes someone may pass away in their 30s with absolutely no medical history not on any medications, haven't been sick. And that's when the family history really can help us and comes into play. Sometimes these questions are hard to ask. Well, always they're hard to ask, right? Because it's really hard to ask someone who's just lost a loved one. All these questions about history and whatnot, but they're just things that we really need to know. And the best thing that we can do is just explain to them that our job is to find an answer for them as far as how their loved one passed away and any information we can get from family is going to help us to do that. So we do try to make them understand that we're doing this for them. We're not just being nosy, asking questions. There is a reason why we do what we do. Many times we have to follow up as far as finding family. We've gone back to people's homes before to look through their belongings to see if we can find business cards, maybe indicating a doctor they may have gone to in the past who might have record of a next of kin or a close family contact. We may have to go to the apartment office to find out if they listed an emergency contact on their paperwork when they sign their lease. And so there are many ways that we can look to try and find family members of someone. We also have some computer programs that we use and some agencies that we can reach out to if we have problems trying to find family. And many times an issue of identifying someone comes up. If that's the case, and when I say identifying, if a person doesn't have a photo ID and you can't look at the photo and then look at the person and know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's who that is, even if they're locked in a house that is believed to be theirs, they are unidentified. If someone is decomposed and you can't really tell who they are, then Those people are going to definitely need to be fingerprinted. And if they've ever been arrested or if they have a driver's license, their fingerprints are going to be able to be matched. We would be able to eventually identify them by prints. Now, there are cases where we're unable to do that. And so in those cases, we may be able to, if we think we know who they are, talk to family and get pictures or radiographs from the hospital of previous surgeries, previous fractures, even breast implants have a serial number on them. So we could trace it down as far as that to actually identify someone if needed. And of course, most ortho surgeries, any of the parts that are used also have serial numbers, so we can use that. But worst case scenario, we do have to get DNA from family members and send that to the DNA lab and have that checked to see if we can match them up to actually get a positive ID. So all of that is part of our job. And there are many steps. It's real easy to forget something if you're not paying very close attention. For example, on a possible suicide, we're going to look in the residence for medications. And if we find them, we're going to count the medications and we're going to make note if they're not prescribed to them. Maybe they bought them from someone else. Maybe they're taking a friend's medicines, which would be significant information for our doctor. And we want to know how many were prescribed originally. What day were they filled? How often were they supposed to take them? And that's kind of one way we can tell if something may have been overtaken. And now we don't know for sure, right, because some people put their pills in a pill minder and they're not always in the original pill bottle. So it does help us, though, to get those counts because it kind of leads us one direction or another if we suspect suicide or find a medication in the residence that could have been overdosed on if there's a history of suicidal ideations, When someone may hang themselves, part of our job is to photograph the ligature that they use and we also collect that. So that will go to the medical examiner's office along with the body. We do also carry knives so that we can cut people down when they hang themselves if they have not been previously cut down by EMS for life-saving measures. And then on car accidents, We are responsible for taking photos of the vehicle from all angles. We need to know the decedent's position in the car. Were they the driver? Were they the passenger? Was their foot on the gas? Was their foot on the brake? Is the car running? Are the keys in the ignition? Was the door open? Was the door closed? Did the airbags deploy? Did they have their seatbelt on? Is there any alcohol on the floorboard? any indication that they may have been on their phone and been driving distracted, anything like that are all things that we have to look for in the vehicle and take photos of. Even in natural deaths, if we have to go out and it's a young person who dies at home, we make note of things that we find in the house, any paperwork from a recent ER visit that shows us the complaints and the diagnosis of that person when they were discharged. Has the person been vomiting? We look in the toilets. Is there any vomit in the toilets? Is there anything in the trash cans that can help lead us to the cause? Is there any medications, any alcohol, even tobacco, any drugs, anything like that, that may lead us to ideas or suggestions as far as what may have happened to this person? In suicide cases, if it's a gunshot wound, we've got to photograph the weapon, we've got to photograph the ammunition, and of course, we have to photograph the defects that we see on the body. So, of course, you can't wipe anything off, you can't stick your finger in anything, But you have to try to get a good picture of the defect because many times when someone's put in the body bag and then taken to the medical examiner's office, things kind of get stirred up. So we try to get good original scene photos for our doctors so that they can feel like they were there on the scene. One example that I can give is of importance, I guess, of talking to the family and also taking good photos and doing a good review of the body as far as injuries or previous surgeries is a hanging that I had. The girl had hung herself on a closet door with a Dooney and Burke purse. And the story that I had gotten from friends who found her was that she was recently fired from her job as a waitress and was most likely upset about that and had had issues with her boyfriend off and on and finally just gave up. So after removing the bag and doing her body assessment, I noticed a really large scar on her back. So very hard to ask the family. However, very important, I did ask the mother about the scar on her back and mom indicated to me that about two years prior, this young girl had jumped off a bridge in an attempt to end her life. So this gives me a good clue, right? There have been some recent events that upset her. And there's also a history of a suicide attempt. So very seldom are hangings done by someone else. But this really helps kind of lock in the suicide cause of death. and. Anything that we can get as far as information to help back that up is always helpful. There are many cases where there's really no indication that we have absolutely no idea. And those are the cases that are going to go to Fort Worth and get full autopsies. And they're going to look at everything. They're going to look for blood clots. They're going to look for strokes. They're going to look for bowel obstructions. They're going to look at everything to try and find the cause and manner of those deaths. We don't always have clues, but a big part of our job is to try to find them if they're there and also photograph them. It's a very hard job and a lot of people think that they would love it and they get hired and then find out that they don't. It's difficult to go into someone's house and see some of the things that we see. It's difficult to visit with the families and ask some of the questions that we have to ask. But those of us who do it love it. And we do it because we're there to help the families and we do want to help them find closure. So that's a little bit about what we do as death investigators. And I know many people always wonder, and there's always different tasks and duties based on the scene specifically. We do occasionally go into the hospitals. A large, large part of what we do afterwards is following up. We may work a scene and then we go to the office, the body, the photos, our report, everything is done. But part of our follow-up is going to be to request medical records from their doctors get a good history from their doctors as far as how often they are seen and what they've been diagnosed with and what medications are they supposed to be taking. Also, psychiatrists. We are exempt from HIPAA, so we are able to request records from psychiatrists and doctors to try and get a good history if someone has history of seeing a psychiatrist and voicing suicidal ideations. Those are things we have access to, and those are going to help us. So that's a big part of our follow-up afterwards. So hopefully that sheds a little bit of light on our duties. Again, not all of them, but in a nutshell, a big part of what we do every day. And we do sometimes become close to the family. We do talk to them a lot. We try to give them answers and as best we can and hope that we can help find some closure for them. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pushing Up Lilies. If you like this podcast and would like to share with others, please do me a quick favor and leave a review on Apple Podcast. This helps to make the podcast more visible to the public. Thanks again for spending your time with me. And be sure to visit me at pushinguplilies.com for merchandise and past episodes.